0: Initial urge is to push them away, to avoid them. Um, but you realize that through mindfulness that pushing away whatever is unpleasant is not actually helpful in terms of growing as a person.
1: Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of the Ikigai Project. My name is Peter Nakamura and in this episode I speak with Greg Parentinos who is a second year clinical social work student. He actually should be just completing his degree this year. And him and I talk a little bit about uh, his background in business and entrepreneurship and shifting into the world of social work, which is where he is now. Um, In this wide ranging conversation, we also talk a little bit about uh, mindfulness and meditation and how he creates his, his habits around this. Uh, We talk a little bit about some philosophy uh, and Buddhism and how do you create meaning in your life and, uh, of course, as a social worker, his interest in uh, psychotherapy and how that can benefit those uh, who are looking to build a more robust mental health and well-being for themselves. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Greg. Feel free to connect with him on social. Uh, You can check out the show notes. Otherwise, enjoy the show. Greg, thanks for joining the Ikigai Project. It's great to have you here.
0: Thanks, Peter. It's great to be here.
1: Um, I'm really excited about this conversation because we've had uh, a chat before this about some of your work in um, in social work or your studies in that space and also around mindfulness. So there's a lot here that I want to um, explore with you and also, I feel like we have um, a bit of a kindred spirit thing going on with your background in going to school for uh, for business and then making that career pivot into into social work. So um, sure. let's 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 get started, and and I'll, and I'll kind of rewind a little bit to where I typically start with my guests, which is exploring a bit of your origin story. Um, you know, where where you grew up, um, what kind of things you like to do as a kid. Um, and any kind of formative moments in those earlier, earlier years that have shaped who you are today. So sure. feel free to take that wherever you, you, you
0: feel like will be most interesting to you. Well, I lived in the East end of Toronto until I was nine when we, my parents decided to move to a small town uh, called Tottenham, just North of the city. And, uh, that really shaped my experience in a lot of ways because it was completely different from the city um so I got a bit of both uh rural and urban in my childhood. I played a lot of hockey that was pretty much everything I cared about as a kid um, and yeah um i i have I've been living
1: in the toronto area for the last decade but i've never heard of tottenham before um and for those who are, of you who are listening this is not tottenham in in the uk this is probably a very small town right somewhere
0: up yeah, the tottenham hotspurs right. um it's uh it's about 80 kilometers north of toronto Five thousand people when i grew up there it's grown a lot since then though
1: gotcha um so what was it what was it like growing up there
0: uh, it's pretty peaceful we had a few acres in, in just outside of town so it was very quiet we had a pond which we skated on in the winter um but uh yeah very different from being in the city where it was just like hustle and bustle and i felt i felt the the kids there were very different from the city kids so i really had to adjust uh, myself and uh try to learn to fit in because i was this geeky city boy <laughs> and um but uh you know now it it just feels like i love the city and the and the countryside
1: yeah how old were you when you moved there uh,
0: 9 or 10
1: okay so like pretty formative years in your in your childhood when you're 9 yeah. or 10 yeah Um, how did you, how did you learn to adjust? You know, you're this, you're this city kid who moves to a smaller town. Um, you know, how did you make that adjustment and, and maybe, you know, to go a little bit deeper, um, what did you learn about yourself through that process?
0: Yeah, good questions. Um, I mean, at that age, I wasn't too, I guess, reflective or self-aware. Um, but I think I kind of stayed true to my own self at that time. Um and slowly kind of just found the friends that fit with me or whatever. Um I think hockey played a big part of that role. Um because hockey is somewhere that I did fit in at school and outside of school playing on the local team or whatever. Um, So yeah, I'm not sure what I learned. I just, (laughs) I just think I became more exposed to different lifestyles and that really made a big difference for me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I can totally appreciate that. Um, I moved to Canada when I was 12. So that was also like a formative period in my life, you know, going from a completely different, culture in japan to you know to canada um you learn you learn how to i I don't know if survive is the right word but you definitely learn how to um kind of you know chameleon yourself into uh, the surroundings and and kids in particular are really good at doing that but um at the same time it comes with a lot of challenges right because you're not able to you mentioned the self-awareness might not be there enough to understand what makes sense to adjust to and what makes sense maybe to hold true to yourself and be more authentic.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Um, So you play a lot of hockey, which I want to just touch on. What, what, um, uh, what position do you play? And do you still play hockey?
0: I I was a center. I don't play anymore. I would like to, Um, I I miss the, Competitiveness of it um but uh I find the city's not that conducive for it, it seems like too much of a commitment to, uh I've got a lot of other things go- on the go right now,
1: yeah, no fair enough it is it is a lot of work I need to sport, so you paddleboard for it. yeah. Nice. Yeah. It's summertime right now, if you're listening to this. So paddleboarding feels like the exact right type of activity to do. Um, so that, that's awesome. Um, let's fast forward then to, uh, you know, to, to university and that kind of graduating into that next phase of your life. Where, where'd you go for university? What did you study? Uh, tell us a little bit about that
0: sure i went to western which is in london ontario a couple hours west of toronto i studied business there um i i absolutely loved my degree i feel like a lot of people don't love studying business but it was something i was passionate about um, and still am and um yeah at that point i was just Obsessed with entrepreneurship, and um, that's—I knew at that point—that's what I wanted to be as an entrepreneur. And and after working for a couple of years um, in the corporate world, I did start my own business and um, did that for four or five years before transition, transitioning into social work.
1: So tell me a little bit more about that. Um, cause as a fellow business degree graduate, um, it's pretty easy, I think, to go into that world of business and never look back. Um, mm-hmm. because the, the, the pay is good because, you know, you're used to the culture of having to, you know, work and, uh, be a, in part of that community that's created, whether that you're in marketing or finance or banking or whatever it is. Um, tell me a little bit about what that experience you know in business school was like and then being an entrepreneur how how did you um how was that experience for you
0: um well like actually in business school
1: yeah yeah
0: um well i i met some of my best friends there and um unfortunately none of them really live near toronto um but uh, I've remained quite close to them all since then, and um, they've we've all supported each other through our business careers. Um, some of them have also started businesses that have been quite successful, and um, yeah, I just had I just loved it personally. I know that's not everyone's experience, that's for sure. Um, hmm. hmm
1: how um how did you get into entrepreneurship
0: i think my my dad was, always worked for entrepreneurs and i i was exposed to a lot of entrepreneurs at a young age that were extremely successful and i just thought that's what i want to be so after graduating i was kind of i wanted to get some corporate experience but then i wanted to Um, I was always thinking about what business I was going to start. Like I knew that's what I was going to do. And eventually the right opportunity came up. um, A partner from who I met in my undergrad. Um, She was already working successfully on a, a, a project and kind of needed someone to sort of do the grunt work, do some of the business that maybe she didn't want to do as much of. So it it kind of was a natural partnership, which we, we carried away and did really well well at for quite some time.
1: Yeah. Would you mind, um, sharing with us what the, what the business was about? No pressure if you, if you don't want to.
0: No, it's fine. Um, it was an e-commerce business meaning it was all online it was internet marketing so what we were good at was ranking our websites on google so people search on google whatever result is number one on the page is going to get like probably 30 to 50 percent of the clicks so if you can rank there for certain keywords that have high volumes, you can drive a lot of traffic to your site. And that's what we did. We drove a lot of traffic to our site and then sold various like health supplement products. Um, from there we would, we were like a middleman. We would get a commission if someone actually purchased them and then another company would actually ship it out to them. Gotcha.
1: Cool. Um, and and so, what what happened with that business?
0: Uh, it, it's still running, but uh, we both decided to like it, it. did really well for us, and we just decided we were going to take a different direction. Um, so I I kind of went in the social work direction because um, that's ultimately what I wanted to do with my life was work in mental health and um, the business was a good vehicle to getting me in a good position to be able to work on what was meaningful to me, I guess. Um, mm. so, so yeah, so the business runs in the background, but it's kind of like a, a passive income thing. Um, but it's, you know, we haven't worked on it for a couple of years, I guess now. So we're, you know, it's gone down a lot, but, uh, it's still going.
1: Yeah, uh, good for you though to to create that kind of sustainable business that um doesn't really require a ton of time or attention. Um that's a, a lot of people try to do that and uh have a lot of challenges. So so kudos to you uh and your partner for 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 making that work. Um mm-hmm. what uh what did you learn in general this could be about yourself or about, you know, the entrepreneurship world? What were some of your Your takeaways from being in that space for a few years
0: um yeah a a lot i feel like um i learned i think how to be productive um and efficient at home because seo is quite competitive sorry seo referring to ranking well on google search engine optimization um you have to be very efficient with your time to do well with it. Um, I also learned about a big part of e-commerce is experimenting, like AB testing, trying two things, seeing which one does better and then implementing the one that does better. Um, so a lot of our decisions were very calculated based on the data. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. I could go on about that.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, I I know the world of SEO is pretty deep. So we could definitely take a detour into that and and spend hours on it. Um I have a bit of a background in marketing. So um it's cool. It's cool to hear. I mean, some of the points that you shared around, you know, having to be productive and being wise with your time or A B testing obviously has real world implications too, right? Like you you can carry that over into different jobs and careers and, um, and, and still have it be really applicable and, and useful. So it sounds like you were able to, to, to use some of those learnings into other parts of your life.
0: Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I think there's balance though. I mean, it's, I I have to try really hard to not carry some of them with all aspects of my life. <laughs> right. But I don't think the purpose of life is to be 100% productive at all times, right? You've <laughs> got to let go a little bit. For sure.
1: Yeah. And we'll, we'll talk about that in uh, a little bit later because um, there's, there's a lot there that I know you're passionate about. Um, all right. So you go through a period in your life around entrepreneurship, you have success, and then you make this switch into the world of social work. So uh, tell me how that came up. Why? Why this interest in in mental health and and social work?
0: Sure. Well, I think f- from university days, I started to. Uh, I've always been very philosophical, questioning like the meaning of life and, um, just reading different theories on that. And I think I at some point I went through a sort of existential crisis, um, that affected my mental health. Um, I was feeling very down for a long time. Um, you could consider it depression. Um, and I was very passionate about learning about that and Mm. questioning it and trying to find answers, um, for me and for others, because, Cause I, I found the answers that I was being given by society about mental health didn't seem true to what I was experiencing, or something. So I was very curious. I ended up being, getting involved with volunteering, um, like peer support groups kind of thing. Um, Mm -hmm. speaking about mental health and just doing a lot of research and learning. Um, So through that, I realized this is what I want to do with my life, Um, and I don't see it as a total switch. I am hoping to really, you know, merge it with the business skills to be able to create more access to psychotherapy potentially or whatever it might be. So so here I am a year into my two-year Master of Social Work degree.
1: Yeah. And so I'm curious when, you know, you experienced that the, the depression and, and feel free to, you know, uh, just, just share as much as, or as little as you like. Um, when, when did that happen for you? Was it in university or after what, when, when did that, um, kind of realization that, Hey, taking care of my mental health is really important. When did that happen for you?
0: Um, my mental health didn't really get bad until after university, but I think a lot of the, the questions was very much in university, like the meaning of life kind of questions. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, kind of discovering for myself that there is no real inherent meaning to life. um, That was tricky. And now I realize that we have to, create our own meaning, or at least that's my own view. Um, but that took a while.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a really interesting topic. Um, can you can you unpack that a little bit more? Um around so life inherently not having any meaning, what does that what does that mean to you? And and combine that with creating our own meaning, how does that um, how does that show up in your life? If that makes yeah,
0: sense. um, for sure. It's well, I just don't believe there's any inherent meaning to it. I just see the world as quite empty. Um, and this sounds very like sad or something like that, but it, it's actually I don't see it that way. It's more like we have this opportunity to, to use this life however we want. Um, and you know v- Victor Frankel, author um, that a lot of you may have read, um, he's a very influential author about writing about meaning, um, spoke of three ways to create meaning, um, not that they're the only ways, uh, but through your relationships, through your career and through the actual suffering you're going through. Um, Like you can turn that suffering upside down and make it meaningful somehow. Um, And that's kind of like why I turned to social work in a way, because I, I was suffering from mental health and I realized what I was learning could be really supportive to other people. So it, it made it, it made that suffering meaningful to me.
1: Right. So I I, I love the three kind of um, uh, aspects of meaning that you just mentioned um, from Dr. Frankel's work. Uh, So family uh, relationships and family and friendships makes good sense. You can create meaning through that. Um, You can create meaning through your career and the work that you do. Uh, and then the third one suffering that that's a, a bit trickier, right? Yeah. Um, so, so what role does the suffering play in our lives? Why is that a, um, a potential avenue for creating meaning?
0: Well, I believe that we're all suffering um, just by being alive. Um, the life itself is full of suffering, you know, birth sickness old age death you know it's all all around us um so we can't really avoid it um but but there's things we can do to live with it better or avoid certain types of suffering that we maybe impose on ourselves so Mm. suffering something um, really important to me to, to try to understand better um, in order to live a better life is mm. to understand it. And then what do we do with it? Mm. I don't know if that answers your question.
1: Yeah, no, it, 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 it kind of um, unveils a thread that I'm ex- excited to explore um, yeah. because, you know, in, in Buddhist philosophy and, and in other types of philosophy, like Stoicism, the concept of impermanence and change is, you know, accepted as reality, right? We all get older. We all at some point in our lives will pass away. Um, things, the the only constant is change. So getting used to the impermanence and fragility of our lives is, is actually a a source of strength because then we can work with that. Then we, we can be more anti-fragile and resilient, um so you know i know i know you're also um uh interested in in buddhism i don't know if you practice buddhism but some of these themes probably uh are related to your thinking uh tell me a little bit about you know how like if if anything there resonated for you if you want to add on to that i'm just curious sure. if there's more around impermanence that is, is part of the human condition
0: yeah um i should have mentioned those are all- everything I said there was, you know, directly from Buddhism because Buddhism's made a huge impact on my life, um, in terms of providing some guidance as to a lot of the existential questions I was having. And it Mm -hmm. just sort of fit with my own values and philosophy of how to live my life. It made sense to me. Um, and impermanence, uh, I really believe in, I mean, and it's interesting during COVID, during this huge epidemic, we, we see the, I think we can really see it. Um, And for a lot of people um, who may not have noticed it before, who may have assumed that there's always going to be toilet paper at the grocery store. um, You know, it's a very real reflection of that. Whereas, but if you already know it's, it, it, everything is impermanent, literally everything, it sort of dampens the blow when it actually does happen. When you do lose something, lose your money, lose your relationship, whatever it is, because everything, you just already know it's coming. So that's how I think it helps me anyways.
1: Yeah. How, how do you relate to control in your life? Um, and the reason why I asked that question is because I think a lot of the, the, the fear or the anxiety around um, impermanence and change, it comes from the lack of control. Um, how do you think about, yeah, you know, control in our lives?
0: Well, I don't know if it was the Dalai Lama that said about like, if you can control it, then you don't have to worry you're in control and if you can't control it you don't have to worry because you're not in control <laughs> Right. Uh, that quote really resonated with me i mean uh, it's it's difficult it's difficult though it's much easier um said than done that's for sure but uh i mean i kind of remind myself of that like, if i can't control it then what what use is worrying about it it's not a it's not a productive thing to do,
1: right? How do you practice this on a daily basis?
0: Well, I think um, mindfulness is the biggest thing. I, I practice mindfulness uh, every day, um, formally and informally. Formally, being like I, I sit with a group uh, every weekday, um, and then informally while I'm doing the dishes or walking down the street I'm trying to check in with myself and I think what it what it does is you you learn to just witness whatever's happening happening at the moment to you because you can't you literally can't control everything like um the type of mindfulness I practice uh you really try to expose yourself to whatever comes up um particularly in the body um, and you end up seeing a lot of unpleasant sensations and emotions and feelings that your your initial urge is to push them away to avoid them, um, but you realize that through mindfulness that pushing away whatever is unpleasant is not actually helpful in terms of growing as a person. Um, mm. So. And it's the same, the opposite is true with uh, things that are pleasant. If we become too greedy and try to cling to it, that, that also is going to create suffering. Mm. Um, so I think mindfulness really is such a huge part of all of this. Um, you, you need to, I, I just don't know any other way to be able to practice all of this control stuff without mindfulness.
1: Mm-hmm. You mentioned that you practice on every weekday with a group. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about um, what that practice looks like and and why it's important to, to meditate with a group?
0: Mm -hmm, For sure. Um, Yeah, we, it's a lunchtime meditation. We meet for half an hour every weekday. Um, We do a quick check in a 15 minute sitting and then we, check in with everyone on how it went Um, and we take turns leading the practice Um, and the importance of doing it in a group is that one this is this is a it's very difficult work it's emotionally draining work Um, it's not easy and I have to specify that there's two types of mindfulness in a way it could be broken down to like the the true Eastern Buddhist mindfulness, um, which is, you know, based on a very deep philosophy of how to live life. Um, and then there's the Western take on mindfulness, which is, has become very much a grounding technique. It's just deep breathing to like, like to de-stress quickly in the moment. Um, hmm. And I'm not trying to minimize the value of doing that. Um, but uh, the practice we do is very different from that. Uh, it's actually the opposite in a way, because we're actually trying to get really close to, as close as possible to feeling the the most difficult things to feel, the, hmm. the anger, the Irritation, the fear, whatever is coming up. Um,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I love that. I think there's, I there's a lot of value in being able to get in touch with how you're you're feeling, and and typically it comes through your body, right? Like to understand the 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 thoughts or the emotions. Um, coming through your body and and being able to sit with it. It's something I have still a lot of struggle with, to be honest with you. Like when I know it's going to be a particularly unpleasant sit, uh, I try to push it away as much as possible, but it's funny because those are the meditation sessions that I need to have. And I often feel a lot better for having not pushed away from my emotions, um, and rather just spent the time sitting with them. It's so, it's so interesting, right? Like the more you can get closer to it, into the uncomfortableness, the, the more relief comes.
0: Definitely. And it, that's the importance for me of the group because you feel like more committed. You feel like you have to be there to support the group. So on your worst days, you still show up. Whereas for me anyways, I know that I wouldn't have the inherent discipline to show up if there wasn't a group. It's also just more fun. I, I enjoy, you know, meeting other people and that kind of thing. Um, yeah. And, and I think what, what you do get out of getting close to all of this is you become, you can make wiser decisions you can open up more space in the moment to be able to make a decision that is grounded on in new logic and based on all the information you have at the time as opposed to just reacting. It's like a response mm-hmm. versus reaction um, my this type of mindfulness is is great for that,
1: yeah. So for people who are listening and are curious about maybe giving this a shot, um, do you have any suggestions on how, you know, if you were to t- to, to talk to yourself, um, however many years ago it was when you started doing mindfulness and just say to Greg, hey, Greg, this is what I recommend you starting with in the next, you know, four or five weeks, or whatever that, that timeline uh, might look like to get started. What what kind of advice would you give?
0: Yeah. Yeah it's honestly it's to find a group and a lot of groups might not fit with your own personality or values or interests, but, um, you know, there's lots of mindfulness groups in different locations around the world. So look, look for a group. It's not something that can be done individually, in my opinion, Mm -hmm. um, unless you're very advanced. Um, and, uh, I think in, in Western culture, we, we assume that we can do everything individually. We're not, you know, that's something we value is our individualism. And, um, but it's extremely difficult, which is why most people don't do it. They drop out even though they seem to want to do it. Mm. Don't make it harder on yourself. Like find a group.
1: Right. What do you think about apps? There's a lot of meditation apps out there and they're starting to build in more communities, but do you have any um, opinions on on apps?
0: Um, From what I see, they seem to be very Western Mm -hmm. mindfulness-based. I haven't seen any that are more grounded in the Buddhist philosophy. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I, I don't have a great opinion of them. Uh, Although my entrepreneurial part of me kind of wants to create some sort of app that is more grounded in Buddhism. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it can go a lot further if it was um, in terms of helping people live better lives. Mm -hmm. So I'm a bit skeptical.
1: (laughs) Well, there's your next business idea. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, Let's let's shift gears to. I mean, this is not a total shifting of gears, but you know what you're what you're focused on, what you're studying right now. You're halfway through a two year social work program, and by the end of it, you'll you'll be a you know be able to practice psychotherapy. And I know you're passionate about combining both the world of psychotherapy with mindfulness. Um, so, what would what would that look like for you? What does kind of the mindfulness involved psychotherapy? Uh, look like for you when, when you're, when you graduate?
0: For sure. Um, Something I'm still trying to figure out at the moment, putting a lot of thought into it. Um, And it might not happen right away, but uh, there's a lot of overlap between mindfulness, Buddhism and psychotherapy a lot. And actually there's quite a lot of um, academic literature on the overlap and the differences Mm -hmm. uh, because Buddhism is very much, a psychology as well as a philosophy about how the mind works. Um, So, um, in my practice that I, well, that I'm still learning about, um, I'm learning a lot about body mind psychotherapy. So really paying attention to the body as much as the mind because in the West or probably maybe everywhere. I don't know. Um, we're so stuck in our heads; we've ignored the body. When the reality is, they're not actually separate, but we act as if they are separate. Um, so, the kind of the I took a couple mindfulness um, informed psychotherapy classes, and that's what we really focused on was paying attention to the body and working with the body. Um, Mm. So I'm hoping to do that in my practice later on. My dream is to have a practice where people can do the mindfulness sittings as a group and also see a mindfulness-informed practitioner um, because I think the two go hand in hand. I don't think it's ideal to um, maybe do... I was going to say do one without the other, but uh, that might be too much of a statement. Uh, I think what I mean is that um, it would be really optimal to be sitting with your mo- most difficult emotions in the sitting and then being able to work with them directly with a mindfulness informed practitioner. Mm. Um, and that's what I would love to be able to do myself. Um, I'm not sure if I'll be able to create that, but that's kind of the dream.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I can, you know, relate to it just from my personal experience where I had the pleasure of working with a psychotherapist and learned a lot about my childhood and ex- kind of um, explored topics that I would never do on my own. Like just to have an adult in the room to help you say, Hey, like, you know, the way that you were raised, there are certain areas that I was not, didn't, didn't, didn't seem, doesn't seem right, is helpful because, you know, your therapist kind of acts as that, that, you know, parent figure in a way, not completely, um, that kind of talks to you and your, your past experiences in a way that you, you you know, you maybe could not make sense of it yourself or don't want to you. So you kind of tap away from it. But the mindfulness piece, I didn't really have in conjunction with it. And specifically, it was maybe loving kindness, meditation and mindfulness that I could have used to be kinder to that inner child and to myself through this process. Because, you know, conceptually, I can understand things about things that didn't work out when I was younger. Um, And then on the other hand, you have to be kind and you have to forgive yourself and let go of that guilt and shame. And that I think is a space that mindfulness can really play a big role in. Um,
0: For sure. I think, but that's why I think it needs to, the two have to happen because there's certain things that mindfulness can do and certain things it can't do. And there's a interesting topic um, called spiritual bypassing um, where people try to um, get over difficult childhood experiences or other things that really should be worked on in counseling mm. uh, by, by looking towards religion um, for answers on. And so there's a, a, t- a fine balance between the two. Mm. If, you, if you know what I'm saying.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There, there, there are certain gaps that each side can't fill on its own. I, I... 100%. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, well, and so this is really cool and I'm really excited. So you got a year left in this program. Um, what, what does graduating, what does, you know, post, uh, degree look like for you? What would you want to do?
0: I would like to, I definitely need to get more work experience in the, in the field uh, before I can, do a lot of the things i want to do i just need to you know build up my hours and uh, eventually i'd like to start some sort of mental health or mindfulness uh, clinic or something along those lines Uh, but we'll see i feel like a lot's going to change in the world with covid over the next year so we'll have Mm -hmm. to just see how that plays out and but i'm excited to get going with the practice with social work practice for sure
1: i'm excited for you i, I think it's, yeah. <laughs> society is going to benefit from you being out there and uh supporting people through their journey um in mental health and, and well-being um shifting kind of gears to the the final part of this conversation and i, I always like to ask um and this is probably going to be uh, a, a meaty question for you uh-huh. uh you know, the Ikigai is the Japanese word for the reason for being, um, what does Ikigai mean to you? And, and, you know, how do you know you're, you're going in the the right direction? Um, feel free to take this in whatever direction you, you find most interesting. Um,
0: for me, it just, it feels right. Um, I don't know. It's, uh, it's what I'm most passionate about it's it's during my darkest times this is the one thing that I was like able to get focused on and really um, you know be passionate about and that that sort of drives me and there's a lot that I disagree with in how mental health is treated in our society um, which really pushes me in this direction. I just somehow I know inside that this is what I was sort of meant to do. Um, I, I really don't like the pathologizing of everything in our society, um, mental health related. I think mental health is very important to take care of, but I, I don't necessarily believe that um, we understand the brain enough to just prescribe a pill that uh, mm. I know this is a big topic to bring up at the very end, but, um, the, the research just isn't there. I mean, we don't, we're not paying enough attention to the humanistic approaches, um, to mental health that I think are what we really need is maybe more connection in society, healthier lifestyles uh, that are more balanced. Um, Sticking with our values um, and that sort of thing—things that social workers can really help people with. uh, So um, that's why I chose to go into social work.
1: Yeah, yeah, I love that. Everything that you just mentioned um, at the end there—I think we should be striving more, uh, more towards um, and. You know it's um, it's really easy to um, get caught up in you know we talk about mental health uh, but it's it's all a holistic approach, right like even the word mental health I learned from a a, a previous guest, Renee Fishman, just doesn't capture the whole um, meaning of of what we need to do it's It's not just mental health, it's physical health and it's it should just be
0: categorized maybe as as
1: well-being as as human beings. Oh, really? And
0: it also doesn't consider enough the impact of other people. Like we, we don't live in isolated hubs, although we sort of do during COVID. Um, <laughs> but every, everything around us affects us. Like um, it's called systems theory. Like um, your workplace, your education, the people in those places, the healthcare system, the politics, the racism. Every everything are our family members, our health, like it's all interconnected. Um, so to, to pathologize mental health is to ignore all of that, which I don't think is accurate to what we're actually facing. Mm. Um, so we, we need a much more comprehensive, holistic approach. That's for sure. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, I feel like we could talk for another hour or so and, oh. and, and, <laughs> talk about topics we were actually before even the call talking about a few things that we haven't even had a chance to cover so um but but this was great and i appreciate you and your time um helping to kind of unpack a little bit about your background and why you're so interested in in some of these topics that we covered for anybody who's interested in keeping in touch with you and following up on your um your work and staying connected what's the best way for people to reach out to you
0: Yeah. Um, happy for anyone to reach out anytime. Um, my email, I guess, which is my full name at gmail.com or Facebook, which is, I'm the only person with that name. Um, nice. So I assume you'll have it on the website or whatever.
1: Yeah. I'll put it in the show notes for sure. Awesome. Well, thanks thanks so much, Greg. Yeah. It was a pleasure. I'll talk to you soon
0: okay take care
1: thank you so much for listening special thank you to hugh for the theme music you can check them out at hearhue.bandcamp.com. if you're interested in learning more about the ikigai project you can check out the blog at ikigai.blog and if you found this content useful please subscribe or tell a friend or family member about this podcast i'll see you next week for another episode of the ikigai project take good care for now everyone
0: Need to feel love Need to feel love